Well, good evening. All right. Tonight, we're going to talk about angels. We uh, put this category as angels, Satan, and demons. Uh, tonight, we're not going to hit the Satan and the demons part. Just maybe scratch the surface because of some of the verses that allude to um, the principle of fallen angels. We'll talk about that. But so, angelology, or angels tonight, just want to give you a summary. I thought about giving you handouts, but I noticed that you guys make airplanes out of them, or you ball them up, or you leave them. And if you would like to have the notes that I share with you tonight, I would be more than happy to supply those for you. Uh, just come by my office or check in and let us know you want a set of them. And Don, myself, we'll make sure you get those, okay? Let's do a running start to talk about, uh, with an introduction with two very important references to angels. Hebrews 1, if you'll make your way there. I will read some of the verses that explain uh, numerous points regarding angels, but I'm trusting that you'll write down some of these for the sake of time because uh, literally we could spend way more than our allotted time tonight, and I don't want to do that to you. Especially I don't want to do that to our nursery workers, right? Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 4. Let's get a running start. Verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Who is this? Well, it's the Son of God. That's right. After making purification for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So immediately when we think about angels, we need to think about their ministry and their place. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the Son, but they are servants. He's the Creator, but they're creatures. Y'all got that? And that's important in a world where people would elevate an angel uh, to divinity or deity. Uh, there was kind of that kick going on in the early 2000s for the span of time, whether it's touched by an angel or whatever. There was kind of this big time thing with angels and uh, people seeing them here and there. And uh, of course, we know that there are um, doctrinal eras or era with certain uh, religious organizations when it comes to angels as well. But it's good to start remembering. Uh, that they have a ministry, but they also have a place. Uh, they're not equal to the Son of God. They are uh, created by Him, and He is superior. He's the Son of God. And then in verse 14 of the same chapter, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit? Notice the terminology. Serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. I think that scripture is pretty clear that God may know who's going to be saved. We talked about that one night. Look at that again. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So there is a particular... Now, many people are going to jump on that verse and say... Well, that means everybody has a garden, guardian angel. Well, whoa, back up a little bit. Pump the brakes. That's not what that says. Neither is there a place anywhere in the Bible that specifically addresses each believer having a guardian angel. We'll talk about that later. But the deal is, these are ministering spirits. They're servants of the Most High God. Uh, now, just for the sake of introducing it, uh, flip over to Jude, chapter Jude 5 and 6. You got one? There's no, it's, it's, it is what it is. Jude, right? Verse 5 and 6. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, 
He has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Well, that's kind of an interesting uh, addition to angelology. And so we know that Revelation 20, 1 through 2 gives us a description of our great arch enemy. The dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, the adversary. Uh, the ones that chose evil are demons. And I want to remind you that angels are fixed in their holiness. But demons are fixed in their fallenness. Okay, just by way of introduction. Angels are created beings. And they're messengers of God. They're powerful beings that inhabit the heavenly spheres. And, according to the Bible, they minister in both the heavenly and the earthly realm. Angels were present to praise God at creation. It's one of my favorite verses. Job chapter 38, 4 through 7 speaks of the angels singing praises to God as He created the world. And then Psalm 148, 2 through 5 speaks of the same thing. So they were created good because God cannot create anything evil. Angels are responsible for their own actions. And a number chose evil and disobedience rather than good and obedience. Found in Matthew 25 verse 41. Okay, what can we learn about angels from Scripture? Are you ready to write? Uh, some of you are just going to say, I'm, I'm just going to listen. Or you just trust me so much that I'm not going to say anything wrong that you're just going to take it all in, hook, line, and sinker, right? What do you think about that, Brother Richard? Yeah. A little bit of ink is better than the best memory. Did you see him hold his pen up? Yeah, he's ready to write. Okay. Again, ask, ask a question anytime. We're just studying the Word tonight, learning a little bit about angels, okay? What can we learn about angels from Scripture? Number one, angels are intelligent beings. We learn this from the Word of God. Um, I'm not going to look up every verse because, trust me, it take a long time. Matthew 18.10 tells us that they understand. So that adds credence to the fact that angels are intelligent beings. They are curious, especially about salvation. 1 Peter 1.12, some of these I'd love to read because they're some of my favorite verses. But angels are intelligent beings. Matthew 18.10, they understand but they're also curious, and especially concerning our salvation. 1 Peter 1.12 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long. Uh, the word here is to lean over and look into. Uh, they like to look into our salvation. Uh, they were not created redeemable. You are. Uh, they don't know what salvation is like. Now, you know full well they knew exactly when the Son of God left the confines of heaven. They understand the redemptive plan. But they're curious, and especially when it comes to our salvation. The Bible also teaches in the realm of intelligence that they worship and speak. And intelligence is required for those activities. Psalm 148, verse 2. So they are intelligent beings. Number two, they are emotional beings. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. Does anybody have any idea where that narrative is? It's around and centered around the birth, come on folks, of Jesus, right? And you have the angels in Luke 2, 13 through 14 rejoicing and praising God. Which uh, brings up the second one, Luke 15.10. They actually rejoice. They are emotional beings. They praise, they rejoice. But Revelation 12 also talks about the fact that there's some, there can be some anger involved when it comes to angelic beings. So they're not only intelligent, but they're also emotional beings. Number three, angels are volitional beings. Let me show you what I mean by that. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. And then he goes on to say, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. But from that we know that these particular angels had a volitional will 
because they actually chose to sin. And then back in Jude, verse 9, we learn that not only are they volitional in the fact that they can choose to sin or not, but they have plans. Jude 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Man, don't y'all find that fascinating? I do. They're disputing over the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So here is uh, volitional beings. 2 Peter 2.4, those confined in chains, chose to sin. And then, of course, the archangel Michael having plans and carrying them out. Number four, angels are responsible beings. Uh, Again, Jude 6, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains. They're responsible. And uh, let's don't read Matthew 25, 41 just for the sake of time. But so far, intelligent, emotional, volitional, responsible. Angels are creatures, number five, and they do not procreate. Colossians 2, 18 through 19 mentions their creation. Revelation 19, 10, and then Revelation 22, 8 through 9. And because they are creatures, they are not to be worshipped. Right, And any time throughout Scripture when you read that uh, people sought to worship them, they always deferred, right? Uh, that they did not want to be worshipped at all. But worship was reserved for God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's going to be the response of angels throughout Scripture. is not to receive worship, but to make sure that the worship goes to the King. Correct? Number six, angels are spirit beings with some type of spiritual body. They're ministering spirits. In other words, they're just not totally a phantom, but they have some type of ministering spirit. They're spirit beings, but some type of spiritual body. Uh, now, unless God manifests them to us to see, obviously we would not see that, but I think that's what the Scripture reminds us of. In Angels are contingently immortal. They will not cease to exist. What do we mean by that? Well, they were not immortal before they were created, right? They're contingent upon the fact that God, they haven't always been. God at a particular time created them. So their existence is totally uh, upon the Creator who made them. And they will not cease to exist, so uh, neither will you. Right? If you are a born-again believer, you've been created by the Lord and uh, is similar to us. Uh, let me show you Luke chapter 20, verse 36, if I got this reference correct. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of of the resurrection, uh, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage. So there's a similar contingency upon our creation by God. And once you become a believer, uh, the immortality that we will have, not only spiritually, but bodily, we will be resurrected and given an incorruptible, imperishable body. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So again, immortality, yes, they will never cease to exist, but They are contingently created. They're made and created by the Lord God. Okay? Uh, Number eight. Angels do not marry and do not propagate. Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is the most concise presentation of the gospel. And chapter 12, verse 25, the Bible says... For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Pretty straightforward, right? Uh, The Lord Jesus is referring to our estate once we're in glory, but he's also referring uh, to the complementary view, uh, complementary to angels, 
contrasting angels and us that we will not be given into marriage and neither are angels at the present given in marriage. Number nine, the angels are numerous. Job 38 verse 7 speaks of the enormity and the incredible amount of them. Daniel 7 verse 10, we're going to get there, right? Uh, Revelation 5 11. Revelation 12, 4, they are innumerable in number as many as the stars. Boy, it's hard for us to fathom that, isn't it? But they are. The angels are numerous. So that gives you uh, what we can learn about angels. Intelligent, emotional, volitional, responsible creatures that do not pro uh, procreate. Ministering spirits, they're uh, contingently... Uh, Immortal, meaning they, they didn't start, they, they, they had a beginning, God created them. Angels do not marry, and do not propagate, and then angels are numerous. Alright, y'all doing good on angelology so far? Alright, second thing, there's classification of angels. Number one, there are unfallen elect angels. Mark eight thirty eight. And 1 Timothy 5.21. And I would tell you that today, now, uh, after the fall, and you had disobedient angels, and you had elect angels, that those angels are sealed in holiness. They will not disobey their Creator. But there are also fallen non-elect angels. Matthew 25 and they are sealed in their fallenness. They followed Satan. Now here are some interesting things to note about the classification of angels. <clears throat> when you get over in the book of Ephesians, you will find that some are loose. When we think of demonic forces, uh, demons. There are some clearly in Ephesians 6 that are referred to with demonic powers. So these fallen angels are loose on the face of the earth. Ephesians 6. Uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There's a plurality of them. So Ephesians 6 would remind us that we could all potentially have demon problems. I don't believe that Christians can be demon-possessed. But I certainly believe that you can be demonically oppressed. And I certainly believe that there's probably a few right around this church right now. I mean, let's just be honest. They are. There are. And we all uh, can have demon, demon problems because uh, when you think your war is against your spouse, in reality, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's what it says. You do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There's something always bigger going on in the spiritual realm. Uh, however, that doesn't mean that you should be one of these demon under every kind of rock person either. But you better have respect for the enemy. And awareness that we live in a world uh, that, are, that is full of demonic forces. And although the devil himself is not omnipresent, he can't be everywhere at one time. Boy, he's got a bunch of demons that are all over this world, right? And trying to <clears throat> circumvent the work of the Lord. So some are loose. But according to 2 Peter 2, 4, which we've already read, apparently some are already bound. <clears throat> you may find that kind of fascinating. We don't know exactly why Satan uh, could be freed at a particular time, right? He, he's going to be put into a thousand-year millennial uh, during the millennial reign, but yet he's going to be freed. Uh, we, we think about those things and wonder why. We wonder why some are chained uh, and some are not. And uh, I'm sure you may have questions about those. Uh, some people surmise, just for a, an example, uh, the Nephilim in Genesis 6. Some believe that because that sin was so insidious uh, that God in turn confined a certain number of those uh, already in change, he chains held into the day of redemption. That's just an example. I don't know. It's conjecture to wonder why God uh, confined some in chains but loosed others. But aren't you thankful not all of them are loose? I mean, we just think off the top of our head just what a blessing it is 
that he did in fact confine some in chains. And in C, apparently some are bound but will be released during the tribulation. Revelation 6, chapter 6 through 19 reveals that to us. Any questions so far? Everybody clear on angelology? Uh-oh, Miss Mary, I should have known. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm, I, the next point is called organization of angels. All right, you ready for that one? You just move me from classification straight to organization, right? All right, here it is. Organization of angels. Archangels. From the word arche, meaning chief. Now, let me give you a little Catholicism. You want some of it? So this is something you think about and forget about, okay? Um, Catholics usually have seven archangels. Angels named in various literature include Jeremiel, Seraquil, Raquel, Remiel, Raphael, Uriel, Michael, Gabriel. If you can pronounce all those and 25 cents added, you might get you a cup of coffee over at McDonald's, right? No, I'm kidding. So... Protestants, however, usually have how many? No, only one. Only one, and that's Michael. The only reference in the Word of God, Scripture. Understand, Catholics do not hold. Catholics hold. you got to be careful. They say they believe this. But in actuality, they also have their traditions. And their traditions is the filter they use to explain the Bible. So they hold their traditions above the Word of God, which is a heresy. Okay, Keep that in mind. Anytime you're dealing with Catholics, they have another set of authoritative writings that they hold to, and it's not the Scripture. We hold only one set of authoritative uh, word for life and practice, and it's called the Bible. Amen? Y'all listening? So... Protestants usually have one who is Michael. Aren't you thankful we're in the book of Daniel? We're going to see him, Daniel 10.31, and then 1 Thessalonians 4.16, and then Jude chapter 9. Only Michael and Gabriel are angels who are named in Scripture. Period. In the Word of God, Gabriel and Michael. Michael is presented as an archangel, and Gabriel is presented as a messenger, especially in the realm of our Savior's birth. Okay? So I would reject wholeheartedly the literature promoting Jeremiel, Seraquil, and all the others. Okay? Did that help you? Amen. All righty then. Yes, El is the endings that belong to El, which means to God. That would be their take on those archangels. Okay, good question, sir, and you're right. That's what, they, that's what the L on the end is for. The endings, they belong to, to God. Just not mentioned in the Bible, right? They're not. So we hold to one, or, you know, if you... Look, folks, when it comes to the Bible, you may have that million-dollar question one day. How many archangels are mentioned in the Bible? Only one. If you win a million dollars, you have to give your pastor 10%, all right? <laughs> Better yet, give it to the church. Give it to the building fund and pay off that 1.7, all right? I had somebody come by this morning and say, Pastor, if I had that money, I'd pay off this building. He was serious as he can be. I said, well, you never know. If the Lord gives it to you tomorrow, don't you go back on your word, right? No. <laughs> all right. Now, uh, archangels from Arche, again, Catholics with seven. However, the Bible presents one, and it's Michael. Pretty bad dude, too, right? Pretty powerful dude. All right, number two, perhaps the others are organized as listed below. And this may be some type of hierarchy, or it may simply be their function. What I mean by that is in Ephesians 3.10 and Colossians 1.16 and 1 Peter 3.22, I'm going in reverse, 1 Peter 3.22, Colossians 1.16, Ephesians 3.10. 1 
suggests that there's some kind of hierarchy, but it actually could be functionality of how they function. In other words, thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities, and powers. Now, the designation doesn't necessarily warrant a hierarchy, but there seems to be a hierarchy possibly with elect angels and also fallen angels. Y'all snoozing yet? All right. Number three, there are the cherubim who are guardians of the holiness of God or God's holiness. We find them in Genesis 3, 24 and Ezekiel 10, 20. Number four, there are the seraphim, literally burning ones, and they're in the immediate presence of God. Does anybody know the huge, wonderful passage of Scripture that speaks of them? Isaiah 6. And there is an interesting category, number five, with regard to organizations of angels. Organization, there are the living creatures who praise God constantly before His throne, found in Revelation 4, 6. And you re- when you read these characteristics, it seems that they hold both the characteristics of the cherubim and the seraphim. Pretty interesting. Okay. And it's possible, we might say, that these last three designations, living creatures, seraphim, cherubim, there's a possibility that they're designations for the same group. We don't know. Or how about function of angels? I think this is important. Number one, to bring revelation. Daniel 9, 21 through 23. Again, boy, we're going to have fun in Daniel, right? We'll be introduced to some of these. They bring revelation. Daniel 9, 21 through 23. They strengthen. Luke 22, 43. They minister to God's children. Hebrews 1, 14 and Matthew 4, 11. Again, that kind of always brings up the guardian angel. But uh, that's not found in the Word. Again. There's something I was thinking about that I forgot to tell you that I'm going to hit on in just a minute. Um, They minister to God's children. Uh, Nowhere in the Bible does it specifically say that there is, in fact, a guardian angel with everybody. It would kind of be nice to think about. I would probably need three of them. I don't know about you, but just looking at my life, I need, I need one. Uh, I need four or five of them, probably. Maybe you do, too. They protect. Matthew 2, 13. Number five, they dispense judgment. How about the death angel in Ezekiel? Uh. And then Revelation 8, 9, and 16, in the bowl and trumpet judgment, we see the dispensing of judgment by angelic forces. And then number six, they are always present at key events of revelation and redemption. I love this part, if we had time to unpack all of them. But they're always present at key events of revelation and redemption. Number one, creation. They were present, Job 38. When God made Israel a nation, Genesis 18, 1 through 7. When God gave the law in Galatians 3, 19. At Christ's birth, right? Matthew 1, 20. Don't you love uh, the incarnational part? Of Christmas, right? Uh, the sentimentality part, uh, the hoopla, the hustle and bustle, not so much. But what we really celebrate, the enfleshment of the Son of God, is pretty awesome, isn't it? Now, I didn't say reincarnation. That's Hindu and bogus. We said the incarnation of the Son of God, the enfleshment of God putting on human flesh. And the Bible says that the angels were present and celebrating. How about 
the embryonic stages of the church and its development in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. And then during the millennial reign in Revelation chapter 20, we have uh, angels being present. One thing I want to remind you of, and I don't want to burst your bubble, but every single time in the Word of God, angels are mentioned, it's always in the masculine form. Every, we've got a Hebrew scholar in here tonight. His name is Philip Shuford. He just hung his head. I don't know if it's possible. These guys claim to be Hebrew scholars. You think they can do that, Philip? I don't know. The fact of the matter is, um, now, they're spirits. You, you get that. But every time they're mentioned in the Bible, it's the masculine gender where God calls them uh, where he wants us to understand that, he always uses the masculine gender. So any picture with curly hair, chubby faces, woman, just don't cut it. Our little bitty babies, that's not cutting it, okay? And every time that they actually appear in human form, it's as a man. Read your scripture. So don't have bad theology when it comes to angels. You know, if you read one more time on Facebook that so-and-so has gotten their wings or they have become an angel, don't it, don't it just hurt your feelings, make you kind of sick? Grandma has become an angel. Y'all know what I've said about that. I can promise you your grandma wasn't an angel when she was alive, and she ain't no angel now, right? She's just not. Yes, ma'am? Okay, I'm, I'm grasping. So... You're, you're asking how the death angel functioned in Exodus? Uh-huh. Uh, like a bad dude. I mean, that I don't want to have nothing to do with, you know. One of my close friends in my church at, uh, in South Carolina said that to me one day. He was just walking around. And he came up and said, Pastor, he said, just imagine what that death angel was like. I said, yeah, I can only imagine. Oh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Now you're bringing it over to an, an individual's death. And did, are they stricken by an angel? Is that what you're meaning? A death angel? Yeah. I mean, I think the only place in the Scripture you see it is in the context of the exodus and the plagues and the death of the firstborn. I think it's all conjecture after that or, or, you know, or no validity whatsoever. But the death angel was sent by God in the book of Exodus to obviously uh, bring about... Uh, the full understanding to the false gods of Egypt that only one God had the power over death. So every time one of those plagues was mediated out on the people, obviously the first nine, uh, the people of Israel sat in total safety. But when it came to number 10, the wages of sin is death for everyone. Even the Hebrews, without the covering of blood, would die that night. And all of this points to the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world uh, to become our Passover lamb. So no one was safe on that night. Unless you applied the blood, God did not pass over. Unless you were expiated, covered by the blood. And unless you were propitiated, God passed over you and removed his wrath. So those two things are right there in Exodus. Propitiation, the wrath of God must be turned away. But your sin also must be covered, called expiate or expiation. So, yeah, that death angel sent by God to fulfill the will of God, meaning that if you did not have blood, doorpost lentil, you, your firstborn died. Cows, animals, everybody, and humans. Only if God lets them appear in human form. Now, they're spiritual beings, and, and it, I guess that's conjecture. Uh, but I'm telling you, Abraham enc encountered two men, Right? And he knew full well they were men, and uh, they were angels. Um, and of course, we probably have all entertained angels unaware. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, I mean, I've heard stories that I think are authentic of a nurse that showed up at just the right time, never to be seen again, couldn't find record of the woman, period. Uh, you've been there. Uh, or, or certain things that have taken place, and obviously uh, we know that God can do whatever he wants to do. In that regard. Sure. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. So absolutely. Okay. 
Who are the sons of God in Genesis 6? Y'all want to end on that one? Yeah, you know, Genesis 6. Since it has a connotation to angelic forces and or why is this in here? What does it mean? You know, there are a couple of places in the Bible that I particularly want to say to the Lord, what in the world was this about? It would be Genesis 6, but it would also be nestled in Luke when Old Testament saints came forth from the grave and walked around at the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, at the crucifixion of Jesus. Does that blow your, your minds like it does mine? Why did they just come up out of the grave and walk around? I could think of some, new, some, some things. Maybe it was the fulfillment uh, for what the Old Testament saints look for. But just read that in Luke. They just got up out of the graves and walked around. First fruits. Yeah, first fruits from the grave. Of course, there's going to be more of those, right? The dead in Christ shall rise first. That's a good, good possibility. But there's things we ask about. Uh, let, me, let me shoot you a couple of possibilities. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And it's connected then to the wickedness that God saw on the face of the earth and thus leading to the Noahic flood. All right? Y'all ready to go home? No, I'm kidding. Here we go. Uh, here's the possibilities. Number one, the identity would first be the Sethites. The godly Sethites, the line of Christ, intermarried with Canaanites. And then the godly line of Seth polluted by mixed spiritual marriages. And then they became wicked tyrants. The context emphasized is men. Human sin is the reason for the flood. Uh, it fits the context of Genesis 4 and 5 perfectly. And it fits the prohibition later in Genesis not to intermarry with the ungodly. We tell our teenagers this. We tell people this. Whoever you are, uh, the reason uh, that you don't... Uh, in the scripture, it wasn't anything about foreigners. It was marrying people who were lost. Now, there were times God said don't marry outside. But for the most, most of the time, it wasn't an issue of color or race. It was an issue. We're all from the same race, right? Uh, it was an issue that will turn your hearts away from God. So you don't marry outside of the faith. And thus, that's what the, happened with the Sethites. The exact phrase, sons of God, not used for believers... The exact phrase, sons of God, is not used for believers in the Old Testament. And then second, it doesn't explain the origin of the giants and mighty men. Those would be the difficulties with it. Who are these Nephilim? So that's the Sethite view. Then there's the human princes or despots view. In other words, despotic chiefs who marry many wives, which was called polygamy, still is today, Kings and princes use polygamy to expand their rule and their influence. Um, great rulers. The biblical usage of God for rulers. Example, Psalm 82, verse 6. Emphasize the development of wicked lines uh, gen genetically. Uh, number two, Near Eastern practice to call kings sons of God was certainly a practice in ancient, uh, ancient uh, Middle Eastern uh, terminology. And then three, the reference in ancient accounts to origin of kingship prior to the flood. Again, that view doesn't explain the giants. It fails to explain sons of God and the use in Scripture. And it doesn't account for the New Testament activity of, or the New Testament reference of angelic activity in the New Testament. All right, so Sethites, human princes or despots, and then fallen angels. Uh, and that's why... Uh, we bring that up. Fallen angels cohabitate with beautiful women. Now, what's the problem with that? What did we learn about angels? They don't procreate. So there's a problem with this one right up front. So fallen angels cohabitate with beautiful women. The human race is corrupted by mixed marriages with angels. Uh, result, uh, the progeny uh, where you have wicked tyrants and great rulers. Here you have monstrous giants. 
Nephilim. Now, it certainly deals with that part, right? Uh, and then uh, a couple of the arguments for it. This was the ancient Jewish view. Held. Uh, the phrase, sons of God, in the Old Testament is used in Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7, and it usually refers to angels. Three, the New Testament references to the angelic sin kind of meshes with Genesis 6, seems to fit 1 Peter 3.18, 2 Peter 2.4, and Jude 6. Four, the unnatural race of offspring, Hebrew Nephilim, or fallen ones, is the translation. The difficulties with it, angels do not marry. Even though reference to fallen ones marrying, so that's Matthew 22.30. And then the other difficulty is the theological and physiological difficulties of angelic and human marriages. All right, last one, demon-possessed rulers. That would be that demon-possessed rulers who marry many wives, or polygamy. So wicked princes use polygamy to expand rule and influence, but it's fallen demonic spirits that actually have infiltrated into their lives. So instead of fallen angels cohabitating, it would be human beings possessed by the enemy, demonically possessed. Um, great rulers would be the progeny. Sons of God are fallen angels who possess men. Pretty good there, right? That's certainly true. Reference to great men is supra-normal. Number three, accounts for ancient reference to kings before flood. Number four, it avoids theological and phys uh, physical difficulties of angel view. Why? Because a demon is actually possessing a man that would marry beautiful women. And then five, it combines values of other views. Uh, difficulties, lack support by many commentators, of course. Number two, lack support of Jewish tradition. Now, there are a lot of guys uh, that you might study behind that are going to fall in one of those categories. Uh, Sethites, human princes or despots, fallen angels, or demon-possessed rulers. And you may say, which one do you believe? Yes. Now, it's depending on when you want to talk to me. But I think uh, John Calvin uh, believed in the Sethite view. And most recently, well, I would say probably, now it's probably been 10 to 15 years ago, a guy named Ken Matthews worked on the Sethite view. And I must say, this guy did a phenomenal job. And I can certainly see where I would lean toward the Sethite view. I think the only two logical ones would be the Sethite view or the demon-possessed rulers, where a fallen being actually uh, possessed evil men and in the realm of polygamy to expand his, his kingdom, that would have been the case. So just a stab tonight on that one, just so you might have some uh, uh, ammunition one day for someone to say, what do you believe about the sons of God? In uh, Genesis chapter 6. That's just a way for you to think about those. Some of you are probably saying, I want those notes now, right? And uh, you can certainly get them. All right? Any questions as we close tonight? Uh oh. One from the soundboard. Oh, I just think the context would demand that. Just like uh, Jude that I read. I think context demands. You know, context has to be king. And so I think with Michael, uh, context proves, uh, I think without any measure of doubt, that he's not Christ. He's not the Son of God. Any others? Yeah. How would we look at the Jewish people are only listed as the chosen people? Mm -hmm. And I've done research, especially the Old Testament with the New, uh -huh. because I believe you have to take both the Hebrew and the Bible to understand, to have an understanding. Mm -hmm. um, they're always going to be the chosen people, so that they have a view of Christ that they you know, are not, they don't need to be saved by Christ, because they, no matter what they do, they still are the chosen people. Mm -hmm. That we do need what? That we 
grafted. And yeah, basically mm -hmm. we're made equal with the chosen people. Mm -hmm. And I thought that, as I thought that through, I found it to be an interesting thought process. I know what we would normally say um, with all religion. Um, it's kind of a hard doctrine. That we um, how do you tie those two together? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, a couple of things. Uh, the best place to read would be Romans 9, 10, and 11. Clearly tells you about that. The first thing I would remind you of is that not all of Israel is Israel. You don't have the name Israel uh, spiritually unless you're born of Christ. Uh, so not all uh, Israelites were saved by grace through faith. As a matter of fact, few <laughs> were saved by grace through faith. So when, when you consider chosen uh, in the Old Testament, it's the people by which God began to work on the face of this earth. And you know, the fact of the matter is God could have chosen any race, but he did. Uh, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 7, it reminds us, out of all the people of the earth, uh, you were the most unlikely choice, uh, which reminds us of the sovereignty of God and election, that God would actually choose them. And then he says, it wasn't because you were in great number, it was because I loved you that he chose the Israelites. However, as you move through the text of Scripture, we know that their inheritance and the blessing will be innumerable, as great as the sand is on the seashore, right? Those, uh, uh, the progeny, uh, those who would be saved, who are Abraham's seed, obviously include way more than Jews, right? And the only way to be a part of, of Abraham, the great blessing, the great command, uh, is to be in Christ Jesus. So if, if Jews who were given the gospel, even in the Old Testament, right? Even in the Old Testament, in the prophets, uh, by Moses, Moses said there is a greater prophet than I that's coming. And you better listen to him. Okay? So Jesus... Uh, to answer your question, the faulty thinking of most people is that Jesus and the gospel were not in the Old Testament. Wrong every time. So Jesus is the story and fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. He's on every page. So if you reject Jesus, then you reject God. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees and Sadducees? If you reject me, you reject the Father who sent me. You, you reject the one you couldn't write his name, Y-W-A-Yahweh. You're rejecting God if you reject me. So, in other words, it doesn't matter who it is, Jew, Gentile, there's no inclusion into the family of God apart from Jesus Christ. Period. All right? So, when it comes to Jews that are lost, then we share Christ with them. And the, it's really what we would call completed Jews. They actually had the heritage. They were the chosen people of God by nationality. But they become the true people of God only when they are fulfilled in it through the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8. And Deuteronomy is the Old Testament equivalent to the book of Romans to the new. And when you get to Deuteronomy, you'll find that love and obedience to the law go together. And that's the first time we begin to see how the law actually is lived out. Not as a means of salvation. Furthermore, the law was given after the deliverance from Egypt, not before. The law, we can actually look at not just simply as do's and don'ts, but a bill of rights. In other words, as a people of God, I have a right to my wife and you can't have her. Amen? Amen. Therefore, uh, it, that forbids adultery. Uh, you know, we have a bill of rights to worship our God and our King. Why? Because we belong to Him. We are His people. So you can look at those ten laws as a bill of rights. In other words, this is the way you live if you're saved, not as a means to be saved. Never was given in that realm. When you get to uh, Romans 4, Paul will say, if you could be saved through the law, there's no need for grace. There's no need for Christ to come down from glory. You clear on that? Okay. All right. There is no salvation. There is no name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. The only name is Jesus. And that's true from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. 
right? Doesn't matter. Uh, you have to see it in conjunction. In other words, you've got to preach Christ, which I do faithfully, from the Old Testament. He's there, all right? Okay? And as, as a matter of fact, you can't accurately understand the Old Testament without a good Christology. You've got to know what, who Jesus is in order to understand the Old Testament. As it's well been said, in the old is the new concealed, and in the new is the old revealed. It's the way you understand it. But Christ is the story from cover to cover. All right, any other questions? Anybody need to get saved tonight after that? You'd be surprised. Sometimes the Lord takes something like that and puts it in our heart and mind, and uh, he, he blesses us with faith to see it for the first time. Well, I love you people. Y'all were good listeners. I hope this didn't sound too academic. Uh, but I'll make up for it one day. I'll do something that's not quite as academic. Just to help you out a little bit. Some things you study, you just can't. I can't make it any easier, really. Just try to do my best to shoot it out there to you. All right. Y'all ready to go home? Amen. I heard amen. No, I know who that said. Whoever said that wants to go to Brahms because that came from the back. <laughs> I know you group. We see you. Let's pray. Great God, we just marvel at who you are. Lord, that you could just speak a word and create the host of angelic forces. Lord, uh, we just marvel. Uh, Lord, we're amazed at who you are and your creative ability. And although we would be mesmerized and, and knocked on our faces for sure, and afraid, like most people were in the Scripture, when we would possibly see an angel, doesn't compare to your glory. Doesn't compare to the glory of your Son. Lord, uh, your Word reminds us in Hebrews that He Himself is the exact stamp of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He Himself, in nature, has the same exact nature, although distinct person. He has the exact same nature, God. And Lord, we marvel at the Son of God who could come down from heaven and put on humanity, Lord, and it be your plan from the foundation of the world in order to redeem our souls. And we thank you that Jesus, the Son of God, lived that law perfectly in obedience and never one time sinned. And he became the expiation and the propitiation for our sins so that we could be saved. We, we say hallelujah. We, we sing that to you, Father, for such a great salvation. And Lord, we look forward with anticipation uh, for thanksgiving so that we can show our gratitude to you. And we think about the time of which we celebrate the incarnation. And uh, Lord, let us look at that uh, with greater eyes and hearts and, and minds than we ever have this coming year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.